Uh, I think it's time that we start the conversation to silence the shame. Silence the shame. Si- silence the shame. Silence is the difference between treatment or pain, life or death. Silence the shame. Speak up now and silence. 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 Silence the shame. Hello, hello, hello. Are y'all could do better than that. What's up, y'all? My name is Shanti Das. I am the founder and executive director of Silence the Shame, which is a mental health advocacy, education, and awareness foundation. And it's funny how life happens. Uh, I used to work in this building. So here, here I am 10 years later, I'm back doing something completely different, but I'm honored to be able to talk to you guys, my music counterparts, about something I'm so passionate about. Um, first of all, I have to thank Vivian Scott Chu. Yeah, y'all can clap for her for introducing me to Darkus from Island Records. So let's give it up for Island Records for allowing us to be in this room today. And Andrea and the rest of the team have been amazing. And um, y'all gotta bear with me tonight. I'm gonna be moderating the panel, but um, like 11 days ago, my big sister passed away, um, who was like my mother. So I've been a wreck. for the last two weeks. Um, But this is what it's about, right? It's about being able to express yourself. A lot of people don't see other people grieve. You know, some people are embarrassed to let people see you go through that. And I'm just at a point in my life where I'm pretty transparent and I'm an open book. And I'm I'm happy if y'all see my tears, right? Because tears, uh, I think I heard somebody say that um, grief is the final act of love, right? So it showed that I love my sister by releasing my tears and wouldn't be able to do this event also um, if it wasn't for Music Cares. So y'all give it up for Music Cares. Last year in May, which is Mental Health Awareness Month, we did this event in Atlanta and shout out to my team member, Free the Vision, who came up with the name, the soundtrack of mental health. I thought that was very appropriate. So this is volume two. So I'd like to bring up Jen just to say a few words about Music Cares because many of you may or may not know they have amazing resources um, as it relates to mental health, addiction, and so much more. Thank you. Hey, I, I want to thank Shanti, everyone at Silence the Shame, and certainly Island. This is an incredible opportunity for us, and of course, all of the panelists. For those of you who do not know about Music Cares, we are the charity of the Recording Academy and we provide emergency assistance to the music community. So that means the singer, the songer, songwriter, the manager, the promoter, the bus driver, the engineer, any professional musician. So we assist in three ways. We provide basic living needs. We do a lot around addiction and recovery. And we also offer complimentary workshops and panels that are of interest to the music community. One has to have at least five years paid in the industry or six credited released tracks. Um, As we all know, mental health is imperative for us to talk about. We can't just sweep it under the rug. So we're really honored that we could take part in this conversation. on that note, I think the most important thing is to get going. So, yeah. Thanks, y'all. Give it up for Jen. All right, so as I stated, <clears throat> welcome to the soundtrack of Mental Health, Volume 2. Last year, we had David Banner, Mama Jan Smith, 
Dave Lighty, who's on our panel again, shout out to Dave, um, and Brian Michael Cox, and it was really wonderful. We had a, a great exchange of dialogue. And so after we ask the panel some questions, we're gonna open it up to the audience because when we do these panel discussions, uh-oh, when we do these panel discussions, we like to call them community conversations because we are a community and we want you guys to be a part of the dialogue. So let's get right into it. I like to start on my left and have each panelist in 30 seconds to a minute, share a little bit about your background and why mental health matters to you. Uh, good evening, uh, my name is uh, Dr. Cynthia Lewis. I'm a psychiatrist and um, I went to Howard University for undergraduate work. I went to Meharry Medical School and I went to Johns Hopkins University where I did my residency program. Um, I think mental health matters to me because I see the need in our community and um, you know, I just see the need that people need to be educated about what mental health means and that mental health is real, um, that, uh, you know, the brain is an organ just like um, everything else and it needs to be treated. And there's a lot of miseducation in our community. And as a provider, it's my goal to really educate those who I treat and to make sure that their family members in our community understands that mental illness is treatable and um, that there can be tragedies when we don't um, treated as we should. So thank you for having me. Thank you, Dr. Lewis. Dr. Randy? Yes, uh, good evening. My name is Dr. Randy Skyers. I'm a mental health therapist out of New Jersey, licensed clinical social worker. I'm also a doctor of social work. And uh, mental health matters to me because I care about my people. And I care about your wellness and your healing. And I want to see people uh, overcome the challenges and issues that they've been facing for many years. Um, I have a program called Mental Hop, which is mental health education through hip hop culture, where we do um, mental hop symposiums for young people. We go around, contract with schools, and it's like the health class that you never had. All about mental health through the lens of hip hop culture. So the kids are engaged and there's an opportunity to promote and create dialogue around mental health and it really just draws them in. So um, I'm a, in private practice in New Jersey and I'm also an adjunct professor at King University teaching uh, social work and new social workers and clinicians about mental health. So um, I just love hip hop and I love uh, mental health as well. Thank you so much. Y'all give it up for Dr. Randy. Um, my name is Leonard Charlemagne the God McKelvey. I am not a doctor. I am a radio personality, TV personality, author, father, husband. And um, I think mental health is important because a lot of us, we, we bleed on people that didn't even cut us. And I think a lot of, uh, you know, black men, especially from certain communities from the hood, you know, we got a lot of pain and a lot of trauma that we haven't dealt with. And I think a lot of times we just end up redistributing that pain to other people. So I think mental health is uh, very important because it helps us to heal. And I think that, you know, once we heal as individuals, then we can heal our communities and heal society. So that's why I think mental health is important. Y'all give it up, Charlemagne. Hi, um, I'm Joy Brown. I've been in the music industry about 20 years. And uh, mental health is important to me because I see it every day in dealing with artists and dealing with managers and dealing with executives within the, in the business and seeing how stress and trauma plays out in our business that no one talks about. And so if, if I can lend my voice and my experience to, to, to dispel some myths, 
to break down some doors, to, to be vulnerable enough to you to share some of the struggles that I have, then that's what I'm um, here to do. So thank you. Thank you. Let's give it up for Joy. Hello, my name is Michael Blue Williams. Um, I'm a manager. I've been in the music industry 27 years now. Um, and I think that mental health is important because too many people that look like me are ashamed to speak on the issues that they're dealing with, um, the ups and downs. I, I battle with depression. I deal with ADHD. I deal with PTSD. I deal with it all every day. And I know that there's a lot of stigmatism in, the, in our community. A lot of people think that you can pray it away. And it's really something that we have to talk about and work through as a community. Give it up for Blue. Thank you, Blue. And last but not least, Mr. Dave Lighty. What's up, everybody? My name is Dave Lighty. I've been in the music business for 20 plus years. Mental health is important to me because it touched home. You know, um, my, my brother Chris, uh, they, it's, they say he committed suicide, and you know, unfortunately, that it was the case. Um, I have a younger brother who's uh, diagnosed as schizophrenic. You know, a lot of people don't know that, but um, you know, dealing with that is is not an easy thing at all. And you know, it's important because we don't talk about it. We just brush it under the rug and make it seem like it'll it will go away, mm -hmm. and then done, mm -hmm. never. It just get worse if you don't talk about it. So you got to talk about it and get it out there and get rid of that stigmatism of, oh, it's a bad thing. Because it's really not. It's just it's shit that happens. You know? You know, everybody isn't born perfect. None of us are born perfect. And unfortunately, you know, people have chemical imbalances and we got to deal with that and learn how to deal with it properly. Thank you, Dave. Y'all give it up for Dave. So I'm going to share just a little bit more than a minute um, and tell you guys how I got to this point. Um, as many of you know, I started working in the music business straight out of college. I graduated from Syracuse. Um, got my first job at LaFace Records, dream job. First record was Players Ball. I thought I was, you know, on my way, as they say, right? And what I didn't tell a lot of people is that my father took his own life when I was seven months old. It rocked our family. Um, it's hard to even say this. I had two siblings, now I have one. And uh, my sister was eight years old and he actually shot himself on her bed. And we never went to counseling as a family, not once. And our clinicians really understand how detrimental that is when you don't deal with the trauma. Traumatic experience can lead to PTSD. And so what I did, though, I buried all of that. So like when people used to ask me, where's your pops, where's your dad? I'd be like, oh, he died. And I would just sweep it under the rug, wouldn't talk about it. So fast forward, I had this wonderful career in the music business, worked with some of the top artists from Prince to Outkast, Usher on down the line. But when I was at the peak of my game in 2009, in the same building, which is why it's so crazy to me right now. You know, my mom developed Alzheimer's that year. My uncle died, who had helped to raise me because my dad wasn't there. One day I was driving uptown, my entire right side went numb. I was so stressed out that my entire right side went numb, so I had all these tests done, and I got diagnosed with cervical spinal stenosis. At the time, Sylvia Rohn was my boss at Universal Motown. She was very supportive. I thought I was going to have to have spinal surgery. Like, my world was coming apart. 
So I literally would go into the office and lock my door and tell my assistant, I ain't taking no calls unless it's Sylvia. I was angry, I was mad, I was depressed, and I didn't know what to call it. So I quit. Walked away making easily with bonuses, half a million dollars a year, corner office, the whip, Range Rover, all of that that we all think we're supposed to have, right, when we're working in this game. But I walked away from it all to go home and start over. And I started doing more community service work, and I was having a tug of war in my spirits, and really I think it was just God trying to get me to deal with what I hadn't dealt with in my past. So as things got tough for me, I started remembering everything about my father, how I hadn't dealt with it, how I hadn't gone to therapy. Then in 2014, my best friend shot herself. I was in Switzerland on vacation, had just gotten there, landed, got the phone call, and I was one of the last people that had talked to her. So guess what, what did I do? I blamed myself for her suicide. I kept you know, retracing all those thoughts in my mind. So between 2014 and 2015, my life took a serious turn. And I was what you call a high-functioning person suffering from depression. Because a lot of people would see me, they're like, oh, you weren't depressed. Well, you know, you were smiling. That means nothing. A lot of people out here smiling and faking the funk, and they're hurting on the inside. They're struggling on the inside. They got pain going on that you can't even see and don't even know what to call it. So one night in September of 2015, I counted all the pills in my medicine cabinet. And I was ready to be out. I thought God was done with me. I'm not proud of that moment, especially to be sitting in front of my peers, you know, after having this storied career, but I don't care anymore. I hope if my story can help save one life, then I don't mind to sit up here and tell my story and to share my testimony. So that night, you know, by the grace of God, I, I was just so, I was crying uncontrollably, and I really didn't want to die. I just wanted the pain to stop, but I had these voices in my head saying, kill yourself, kill yourself. So I got out of the house, started driving around, ran into a friend of mine who knew something was wrong, and she convinced me to call my sister. And my sister convinced me to call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 1-800-273-TALK. And then I texted my pastor because sometimes they tell you in the black church to just pray it away. But my pastor was like, I'm going to pray with you, but you need to go to the doctor. You need to get some help. And I did just that, and I got the help that I needed. And that's why it's so hard to sit up here today that my, my, my sister's gone because at every stage of my life, it was my sister. So then I started this wonderful movement, and now she's gone. Now I feel like I'm back at ground zero. Like, y'all, I'm a wreck. I cried on the plane. Like, I cry every 10 minutes of the day since this has been happening. So guess what? I have to be really careful and make sure that I'm taking care of my mental health so I don't slip back in another depression. Because I do want to be here, and I want to complete this work for her. Because she also had just gotten her master's to become a clinician. And we also have a family member that suffers from bipolar one disorder and schizophrenia, so I know what that's like. So like, I feel like I'm about to be doing the best work of my life right now. Am I ever embarrassed to be around my friends and to tell people, yeah, I thought about killing myself? But I don't care anymore. Like, I, I, it's all about helping and healing. That's why I'm so grateful to you for opening up on arguably the biggest radio show in the country and talking about the importance of mental health. Like, We've got to talk to each other. I'm not saying you've got to post everything on social media, but you've got to be willing to talk to somebody. So that's why we're here tonight. And I'm open to sharing my pain that I can hopefully help to heal somebody else. So thank you. So as I mentioned, May is Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, and we know that mental health and mental illness is still very taboo in our community, especially in the entertainment, is, in a, in, in the entertainment business. 
And we all have mental health. We may not all have a mental illness. So I like to go straight to our clinicians. Dr. Lewis and Dr. Randy, can you talk about why you think stigma is still so prevalent in our community? And also, can you share what types of mental illnesses exist and some of their signs and symptoms? So in regards to the stigma, um, I, I believe it's about fear and mistrust. Um, fear because we often fear what we don't understand. And mental health has always been one of those sort of issues that we never really got full understanding of what mental health means. We could go back in, ter in terms of generations, we were never really allowed to share our feelings. So in fact, when we shared our feelings, we were punished for that. So that in, that in that regard, a new narrative was created where if we express how we feel, then people are going to judge us and, or, and sometimes punish us for doing that. So because of that, we tend to keep those things inside. And then the mistrust comes because when we share that information, it always wasn't respected and wasn't taken care of in the proper way. So therefore, when we share and open up our hearts to people, we don't know what they're gonna do with that information, especially when we're thinking about the systems that be, that treat us in terms of mental health. So in that regard, it's been hidden. And when something is hidden, that's when stigma develops because we don't know what it is. So we create the narratives, it's crazy. Um, something's wrong with you. And a lot of times when we grow up, those are the messages that we received in terms of when we wanted to share, you better shut up, don't talk about that. Uh, you're not crazy, we'll go to the church and we can pray it away. Don't you hate when people like throw those labels out? Because how many of y'all heard somebody say, oh, he bipolar? Yeah, yeah. No, he's yeah. not bipolar. He suffers from bipolar disorder. Correct. So every time you share that or say something like that, you sort of minimize it. So it's sort of trivial at that point, and people don't know, you know, to take those things seriously. Yes, yeah, so, and that's the reason why education is so important. And um, with stigma, it is, it is this, that silence, um, you know, people suffering in silence. And um, when people are educated and understand that mental illness, just like medical illness, um, you know, they're the same. You know, when someone has diabetes, no one questions why someone needs to take insulin or why their pancreas is um, acting up. No one, at, you know, questions why someone's heart gives out and they have a heart attack. But people don't tend to put the brain in that same category. And the brain actually is the most important organ because every other organ can't function without the brain. And the brain gets disordered. And we know that there's um, you know, biochemical uh, markers. Um, we know that there is an anatomy of the brain. We know that the brain can get disordered and then it can cause illness. And um, when we look at major mental illness, we're talking about depression. And we look at mood disorders. Mood disorders either major depression or unipolar depression or bipolar disorder. And bipolar disorder is like between the poles. So people go from these depressions or to these manic states. And they can kind of go between having symptoms of depression or manias. Um, schizophrenia, um, it's less common, but it's uh, people, when people have schizophrenia, they have symptoms of paranoia. They can have delusions where they believe something that's absolutely not true, but you can talk to your blue in the face and they're still gonna believe it. They can hallucinate, which means that they can hear things that aren't really there. They can see things that aren't there. To me, people understand schizophrenia a little bit better because they can see that, that something's wrong and they can appreciate that. I think it's depression that is probably the most 
um, least understood. What because, if I'm sad all the time? Does that mean I'm depressed? Right, exactly. So to me, I look at it, you know, like big G, little G. I look at depression as little D, big D. Little D is sad. You know, you might be down, something happened, um, but you're still functioning. You're going to work. You're, you know, doing okay. You're not yourself, but you're not impaired. When we talk about big D depression, that's clinical depression where um, people, maybe they're not sleeping, they're not eating, they're not um, functioning well, and they're not functioning in multiple areas like in their social life. Um, relationships suffer. Um, and there, it's two weeks worth of these symptoms and then their sadness. And then the most problematic part of depression is you know, this life-threatening aspect, which is suicidal thoughts and suicide, completed suicide. And that's where um, it's really important for us to really educate people that, you know, this is an illness, it's treatable. And I'm sure we will get to some of those, um, the ways that we can treat it. And it's, you know, our job is to really help people to understand what's the difference between little d depression where you might talk, you know, to your loved ones, to your support system, and then what takes it to big d depression. And really, it's really about being impaired. And when it becomes life-threatening, where someone's having suicidal thoughts or, they're just not getting out of the bed, they're not eating, that's when it's really um, imperative that you're in kind of a crisis state. Lastly, can you share about anxiety? Because yes. I think a lot of people suffer. Yes, and honestly, depression and anxiety often go hand in hand. Uh, the most common um, illness that I see and that psychiatrists see is really panic disorder. And a lot of people don't even know what panic disorder or panic attacks are, but I would bet a lot of people have had them. And um, it's kind of like when you're like in fight or, uh, fight or flight, where something happens and your heart starts racing, you get short of breath, you feel like, I just got to get out of there. When people have panic attacks, either out of the blue or triggered by something, they will um, experience heart palpitations, shortness of breath, this overall sense of doom or gloom, and people feel like, I just need to get out of there. And it's really the most common thing we treat, and when people are depressed, oftentimes anxiety goes right hand in hand. So, but there's generalized anxiety disorder where people worry about things that they really shouldn't worry about. Post-traumatic stress disorder follows under the anxiety disorders. So when we look at, again, major mental illness, there's the mood disorders, depression and bipolar disorder, the anxiety disorders, which is the panic disorder, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, which is becoming very prevalent. Then there's schizophrenia. Schizoaffective disorder is kind of a combination of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and you'll see elements of both. And then you'll have eating disorders and um, dementias and, and things like that. Thank you so much. I think we should give her a round of applause for that because half the battle is being educated, like you said, and understanding it. Um, now we know Mariah Carey opened up last year and talked about her diagnosis of having bipolar one disorder. Recently we've heard Ariana Grande talk about PTSD, Kid Cudi has shared, Kanye West, Big Sean, and so many people have started sharing about their mental health challenges. Charlemagne, how important was it for these artists to speak up and be open about their challenges with behavioral <clears throat> slash mental health? And also, what prompted you to really open up and start sharing about what you were going through on The Breakfast Club? Um, I think it's very important for artists to speak up only because, you know, so many people are influenced by these artists. You know, so many artists, you know, teach, whether they know that they're, they're, they're teaching or not. And I think a lot of times when they put, you know, their experiences that they're going through in their music, a lot of us can relate to them. Most of the time we relate to them for all the wrong reasons, you know what I mean? But when it comes right. to things like, 
you know, talking about depression and anxiety. And, you know, I, I just heard a new song from an artist the other day uh, named White David called Clarity, where he's talking about going to therapy. When you hear that, you're like, oh, you know, because you may not listen to your parents. You may That's not right. listen to your teachers. You know, you, know, you may not listen to your pastor. You know, you may not listen to your, your, your friends, but you may listen to that artist who says, you know what, this is what I do to, to keep my mental health in order. So that's, that's why I think it's important. And, you know, for me, I just spoke about it because I'm just the type of person that shares my experiences. And I think a lot of times, man, it gets overwhelming keeping all of these feelings in, keeping all of these emotions in. And when I started to like talk to different people and they were telling me how they went to therapy for various things. And I think one thing people don't realize about the industry, man, whether it's the music industry, the radio industry, any form of entertainment, it can get very, very overwhelming because there is no manual book for this. You know, your life can change like that. And so if you've never dealt with any of those issues that you were going through before, once you get put in certain positions, it'll just magnify times 100 and it just gets worse. And that's what it was for me because... You know, I've been dealing with panic attacks my whole life. Really? Oh, yeah, but ne never knew what they were. You know how many times I've gone to the emergency room thinking I'm having a heart attack? Yeah. You know? And a lot of people don't know that it mirrors a heart attack. Absolutely. Like, I would literally go to the emergency room, think I'm having a heart attack. The doctor would tell me the same thing every time. Oh, you're fine. You got an athlete's heart. Uh, you know, I, I remember one time, you know, when Pimp C died, I really convinced myself that I was about to get found in a room just like Pimp C, you know, and they were just going to find me dead somewhere. So that made me have a panic attack the way I went to the emergency oh, wow. room. And when I got there, the doctor said the same thing. He always tells me, yo, you got an athlete's heart. And he was like, yo, did, did you have some caffeine earlier or some uh, energy drink? And I was like, oh, yeah, I did have a, a Red Bull. So there was always something else I could point to when it came to my panic attacks to say, oh, that's what it was. You know, that it was, I was stressed out because I got fired four times from radio. Uh, I drank a Red Bull. But, you know, when I got put, and actually that's, that's just how I first got diagnosed. I got diagnosed on my fourth firing from radio. And that's when I was back home in South Carolina. What year Carolina. was that? This was 2010. And I was, I was back home living with my mom at like 31, 32 years old. My daughter was like one or two. And I remember driving down I-26 in Columbia, South Carolina, man, and I really felt like that was it. Like, you know what? I'm about to die right here on the side of a road from a heart attack. So I pulled over, drank some water, took some breaths, went to the doctor the next day, told me the exact same thing they always tell me. Oh, you got an athlete's heart. Your heart is fine. But it was like, yo, do you, have you ever uh, had a panic attack? And I was like, a panic attack? What's that? And when I described the symptoms, he was like, well, that's what a panic attack is. He said, do you have anxiety? And I was like, not, not that I know of. And, and he was like, are you stressed out about something? And I'm like, hell yeah. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm on my fourth firing. I got a two-year-old at the house. I'm back living with my mom. I'm 30 plus. Every time I hear no scrubs on the radio, I want to cry. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, but, but in my mind, all I had to do was get another job. And I would be fine. And the next position I got was the breakfast club. But then, you know, four or five years later, you got the money, you got the success, everything's going according to plan, and you're like, why do I still feel this way? That's right. Why am I still having this depression? Why am I still having these panic attacks? And for me, it actually came in a moment of peace when I was on vacation and I was just looking around and I had my family and my friends with me and I felt so, I felt a sense of serenity that I've never felt before. And I was like, how can I feel like this all the time without going on vacation all the time? And my wife was finally like, yo, just go to therapy. Stop talking about it, just go. And, and, and that's what I did. So for me, it was just, you know, something to speak about because you can't, that, you can't be doing something that important and not share that with people. And then I realized the more that I spoke about it, the more I realized it was a tribe out there that I had. It was more I realized that there was other people going through the same things that I was going through. So it became like a support system. And so I didn't feel as crazy anymore, you know, because it was other people going through the same things that I was going through. So that's the reason that 
I speak on it because it just helps me to normalize everything that I'm going through because I know it's other people out there going through it. Well, I thank you for, for what you did and you're a shining example for so many people in the business. Like for me, you know, it took me a long time to even consider going to therapy. And I felt like, you know, I was marketing the careers of all these artists and I could fix them. And surely I could fix myself. I didn't need no therapist. Why did I need to talk to somebody that I didn't know, a complete stranger? But once I tried it, I understood why my sister had wanted me to go for so many years because she actually went to therapy when she was in college to deal with what had happened with my father. But again, I just kind of hid all those feelings. I want you guys to jump in. Have you had ex any experiences with any artists that probably should have gone to therapy? And you don't have to call names, but just I want to kind of share. All of them. You guys to sh <laughs> <laughs> just share some experiences and what it was like. And did you guys ever recommend therapy or were they open to it or not? Um, I've had a, a, a couple special artists. Um, that I won't name, obviously I can't name my name. Um, and, and you can, and, and when you learn what the triggers are of a, of a person, you can kind of figure out how to move them. And in music, I think that's what we do. We don't actually treat or, or encourage people to get therapy. We learn their triggers, right? So we know, okay, well, you know not to do this, you know not to do that, because that's gonna make them go off. Well, that'll make and, them snap. Right, right, and so we don't actually help and help them heal and talk to them about, okay, well, you're, you're feeling this way, well, maybe you should see X, Y, and Z. And it's not, I think it, it comes from a place that we aren't comfortable talking about it amongst ourselves. So how can we talk to an artist who looks to us to kind of guide their career? And so that, that's a big challenge. Um, we, I had one particular artist who I was very sure suffered from uh, on the bipolar spectrum, and I wasn't in a comfortable place to talk to this person about it because they were manic. Like one minute they were this, and I wasn't sure if they were gonna go off and hit me or it would be something like that. And so I had someone who was much more closer to that person, talked to that person, and we almost got that person in therapy, almost. We got a commitment that this person would go, and then the day of their appointment, they didn't go. And so that, that's disheartening in our business because when you are working with an artist, you work so closely with them. You become like a family member. You know, I, I'm there when the kids get born. You know, baby mama drama, court dates, jail. You're there for all of these moments. So you know the ins and outs and the intricacies of their lives. And they become like, you know, I, I've been called mama, you know, because they become my children. And so to see them hurt and to see them um, not getting the help they, they need and not listen to you, it, it's, it's it's sad because you don't see a lot of people around them who are going to get give them the right information right. and get them the help that they need. Blue. Um, as a manager, it's it's a it's a difficult position because you learn quickly how damaged so many artists are. Um, fame, yeah, that's what makes them great. Fame. I'm tell you, like we told Big Boy, don't cup that mic. We can't hear oh, you. No, nah, I got it. Sorry. But um, the the um the fame and success and the money and everything that you think you want really shines a spotlight on all the problems you're hiding with that success and the fame. Um, I've managed four artists that are bipolar. I've been fired from an artist trying to get him to go to therapy because I knew he needed therapy. Um, I started going to therapy in like 2003, 2004 because managing these artists becomes a drain on you mentally as a manager you have to go through all of the ups and downs with them 
but then you have an extra layer which only managers will understand, which is you can be fired after you've carried someone and their family to the promised land. You can get kicked to the curb just that quick. And each time you get fired, you kind of, some of us have been doing it long enough that you sort of learn to deal with it. But each time it, it, it ticks away mentally at you. It ticks away. It makes you question, did you do something right? Did, did I handle this right? Did, like, is it me? And so as managers, you have to learn to cope with that. And then you have to be strong enough to walk your artists through their issues that they don't even recognize. You have sex addicts, you have bipolar, you have drug addicts. There's a reason so many artists are doing drugs because they don't know how to cope with the realities. Chris Brown is the greatest artist this generation has. 90% of Chris's problem is because he's never really got mental health to deal with some of his issues that are where he expresses through his music. And so many artists are like that. That's why so many comedians kill themselves and have the problems because they hide their mental pain behind their comedy. And a lot of that just comes from there's so much shame. People don't want to ask for help. As black men, you don't want to be perceived as weak because you're worried about that weakness getting turned on you. So it's a lot of fear. And in the black community, I think we have a lot of fear just in the, the medical community as a whole because we've been experimented on. We've been, we just don't trust doctors in general. That's why we don't go to get physicals and health. That's why we don't get prostate exams. We just have such a stigma. And to me, silencing the shame is, is getting people to get past that, that it's okay to ask for help. And like Charlemagne, I speak on it because I'm not ashamed of it. Like, my life has been amazing. I've had ups and downs, but I've seen so many of my peers kill themselves or go into depression because the other thing about this industry, as amazing as it is, and it's a great ride when you're hot, but when you get cold, this is a motherfucker out here. Ooh, you better say that you. again. It's a, it's a beast. You can be L.A. Reed to be on your phone on Tuesday. You can't get them off for six months if you get cold. And not just L.A. I'm just talking about in general. It, the game shifts with you when you're cold. And if you don't know how, or if you are like Shanti, who came in the industry, Shoestring was 21 when she jumped in this game. And she was hot 19, 20 years in a row. So to go from being hot to no one's answering your phones, or you got to now stand online, or you don't know what to do, that's draining. So... It's, in the industry, it's definitely even more prevalent. Like, these labels should have therapists on, on staff so that people can feel safe. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Blue. Dave, you want to add anything? I mean, pretty much what these guys have said. I mean, I've dealt with both sides, the management and then creating, with the, creating the, the brand with the artist and itself. And it's like, you know, it, a lot of it is just them hiding and pushing under the rug issues that they have. And part of that is just, you know, how we were brought up and, you know, it's a bad thing. You can't talk about you not feeling well. And it's just a continued cycle that never ever will stop unless we talk about it and start, you know, pushing people to do the right things. Yo, go talk to somebody who doesn't, who doesn't know you and is going to give you a non-judgmental viewpoint of what the hell you're doing wrong. And then sit back and think about it. But I just want to add this. I think, I think what's so important is, I remember talking to you when you were starting this, is, is that 
What, what hit home for me is like when I'm sick or I think I have the flu, I go to the doctor, right? I got to get Tamiflu because I need to do this. Or, you know, I go for a breast examina examination. The brain is an organ just like everything else in our bodies. And I don't understand why we, we can't understand that there's no shame in making sure that your brain is functioning. Right. If you, as, imagine some of us are in here are parents. If your child is behind in school or you think your child's autistic, what do you do? You go get them tested. Why wouldn't you do the same thing if you think your child's having a problem with depression or you think your child may have some symptoms of bipolar? There's nothing wrong with getting help to help your brain, which is an organ that helps your body function. But what is wrong is we sit back and we do nothing about it and we watch people go down this, in, in our business, go down this spiral in, in this career. Because just like you said, managers, when, when in, in labels too, when we're hot, we're hot. You know, everyone wants to be us. But when we're cold, you know, no one's answering. You can't get nobody. You know, you're not getting invited to the party. You know what I'm saying? And same things for artists. And imagine, and I tell people all the time, is that music artists and musicians and, and people who who uh, are in the in the limelight are special. These people are special because what 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 they give up for their career, I couldn't make that sacrifice. Because when I walk out that door, I'm Joy Brown. I'm I'm a mother. I'm culture creators. I'm an Atlantic um, executive, and I can go home. But when some of these people walk out that door, they instantly have to turn on their Chris Brown or their Rihanna or this. They don't get a break. They can't go to the store. They can't go pump gas. There's no escape. So how, when you can't escape and you can't just let your hair down and say, fuck it, I don't, want, I don't feel like being bothered, what do you do? What's your outlet? And that's why musicians and people seek other alternatives because you don't get a break. And I think that we, culturally, we need to change this whole Narrative, I, yeah. A narrative and an ideation around celebrity. Understand these people are people too. They're super talented, but yet they're people too. And I think that's, that comes in hand in hand with us understanding that mental health is important just as any other uh, preventive measure we take for our health. Thank you, Sean. I want to say there's two things I want to say real quick. One, if you're, if, as, if you're out here, if you're raising a young black male, boy, or whatever, stop telling him it's not, not to cry. It's not, that's like, stop telling him it's not okay to cry because you're teaching him to hide his pain. So now he's going to carry that through life. So he's never going to feel comfortable showing that, those emotions to his, his girlfriends. Talking to a doctor is going to be out the question because his mother or somebody told him not to cry. The other thing is, as, as someone has had ADHD his whole life, I, I, what I recommend for anyone that might be raising a child with ADHD is, I know it's difficult. I know the teachers are telling you that he's being hard in school, but try not to put your kids on these drugs too soon. You shouldn't be 10 years old, 11, 12, 13 years old on Ritalin, on, a, on, on these drugs, because your brain is still shaping. And, and, it, and that leads to depression later because the drugs start to have less of an effect, and now they're in their 20s and they're dealing with depression and ADHD. So I know it's easy for a doctor to say, here, give him this Ritalin, he'll calm down and you're getting some peace and quiet at home, but you're hurting your kids in the long run. Well, I want, let me, let me, wait, wait, let me, let me say counter to that. There is an increase in, in suicide rates of young black children. And so while I understand what you're saying as a parent, if my child is suffering and my child has depression and the rate of these kids are committing suicide younger and younger, I would rather risk putting my child on Ritalin or wherever else the doctor would prescribe to save my child's life 
and deal with what I have to do with, you know, down the line than to chance that I may not be there to, to catch them when they fall. Can I, can I add to that? So we always recommend that if you're going to do medication that you be in treatment at the same time. And there's a reason for that because we don't want you to be dependent on the medication. Right. We want you to develop skills and strategies while you're taking the medication. So if anybody's taking medication but they're not in treatment, that could be problematic. So that's the reason why doing both at the same time. And usually the clinician and the doctor are in concert. So we talk, we, we connect together to really help you through that journey of treatment and getting better. So and we're going to jump into medication really quick. Let me just um, finish this thought on suicide and then we'll go into medication. So I pa we passed out these postcards um, we put together on creatives in the music industry and IQmag.net did a recent survey and researchers found that 68.5% of musicians believe they had experienced depression while 71.1% believe they had experienced anxiety and panic attacks. And also um, from the World Health Organization, um, musicians could be up to three times more likely to suffer from depression than the general public, according to new findings from the University of Westminster. And as it relates to suicide, suicide accounted for 1.4% of all deaths worldwide, making it the 18th leading cause of death in 2016. And as we know, like you mentioned, suicide in the United States in particular is on the rise I just saw an article on CNN about kids like between the ages of like eight and I want to say 15. It's double. Yep. Emergency rooms are saying that they have all these young kids coming in for suicidal ideation. Just a couple months ago, an eight-year-old boy in Atlanta hung himself. Mm -hmm. Eight years old, hanging himself. And so, you know, I want to just say, first I have to just stop for a moment of silence and just say rest in peace to Shakir Stewart, Fred Thomas, Robin Sims, and Chris Lighty. Four amazing, amazing entertainment executives that we all looked up to. And if you're a young gun and don't know who they are, you know, Google their legacy. So I just would like a moment of silence for them, please. And now I want to talk a little bit about the stress from an executive perspective. And you can chime in on this too, being on the radio side. I mean, we know what it's like working in a high-profile industry. I mean, again, I, I, I didn't think I needed therapy, but I knew something was wrong, and I didn't know how to, to rechannel that stress and my frustrations. You know, David Banner and Carrie Hilson talked openly um, at one of our panels last year about the pressures of the music industry and how it can lead to stress, depression, anxiety, and so forth. Can you guys talk, can you guys talk about the stress of being a music executive and, and how tough it is and why people self-medicate and mask it, even on the executive side. Because we see artists doing it, but we also know there are executives that's doing it as well. Um, I, I venture to say when I got started in, in the music business around 96, 97, and you know, there's only a couple slots, right? for you to get in. I know where you're going with this. And so the competition for you to stay on your game is at an all-time high because if you're not doing it, someone else is gonna take your, your slot, right? And so you don't, you don't take the time off of work that you should do. You don't, I, I, I say one of the biggest regrets that I have in my career, and I've been blessed, and I'm not, I'm being, I'm totally grateful for all that I've been given, 
But looking back at the times that I sacrificed not being with my children, when they probably needed me. And that's stressful, you know, because not only are you you coming to work with your mothering other people and helping them advance in their career, and you go home, and you're not even taking care of home. But, and so the, the balance of that is, is, is tough. And for me, it came to a point where I said, fuck it, I don't care anymore. My, I wanted to be a hands-on mother, and that's a decision I made. So if, I, if it meant that I would lose my job because I had to go home and make sure that to take my daughter to the doctor or to be at the school play or to go to a conference with the, the, the teacher or to make the basketball game, then that's what it's going to be. Because I, I, I bought them in this world, and I'm responsible for them. And you have, it comes with actually finding your voice and finding the confidence and say enough is enough and it's setting boundaries. And I think I see, I work on both sides of the business. I see, I see more African-American executives that do not set boundaries. We deal with managers and no, no disrespect to you guys, but we deal with managers who don't know how to manage. So we become their managers. We deal with artists who don't have relationship with their parents. We become their parents. We deal with artists. We become the A&R. We become all these things to these artists. So we don't get any time off, right? As long as they're active, we're active. I remember when I switched over from marketing to brand partnerships, I didn't know what it was like to go home and not get on a conference call at 11.30 at night. Right. I, I had PTSD, I was waiting for my phone to ring. I said, wait, no one's calling me? Someone can't get into their hotel? What, no one's calling me, screaming at me? I just didn't know what it felt like to actually go home and have a dinner without being stressed out. I think the worst hashtag ever created was hashtag team no sleep. I'm like, I'm like, that shit ain't sexy. I sleep need my when you sleep. die. Right. I'm guilty of that yes. one. I'm guilty of that one. Sleep when you die. Yeah, yeah. But but the real thing is, and I will say there there are some there are some. I can't speak to everybody because I've I've only really worked at Atlantic my pretty much my whole career. But I would say like when Julie Greenwald came to Atlantic, before she came, I would have never gotten married. I would have never gotten pregnant. I would have never gotten married because it was a boys' club. I was in there. If 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 Joe Schmo wasn't going home at eleven, that means I was going home at one. I was just in there because it was a boys' club, and I had to prove that I could be there and I can I could do just what the boys did. When she came, she's like, you know what? You're not dating. You need to go home. Go get your date. Matter of fact, I might know somebody for you because <laughs> because what she wanted was she balance. wanted balance, yeah. you know, because she knew that the that the happiness. Of, or, or the balance that I need to be a better, a better executive to bring more energy into the room. I need to go home and get some sleep. You might need some sex. I mean, you know, you have to make time for these things. You know? do have to schedule it You do sometimes. have to schedule it, you know? And, and I would tell you, no one was having kids. No one, all of a sudden she got there, um, 90%, some of y'all here, 90% of our building got pregnant and married. And that had not happened before. So it's really about anyone in here that's, you know, working in some place and you feel that stress. It's not worth it. At the end of the day, because I, I say right now, I, I'm living on my legacy. I'm working on my legacy. Because if I die tomorrow, I know what I want people to say about me. I want them to say I was there for them, that I made an impact in their lives, and I, I gave you the truth. And if anything conflicts with that, then I don't want to do it. 
And you have to, and if you're working in a place and the culture doesn't feel right and you feel like you can't go home or you can't go on a date or you can't even go, I've had some people who can't, who can't even go to their grandma's funeral. Yeah, see, that's, that's, it's that's, not worth it. It's whack. It's not worth it. And those are type of situations that build stress. Those type of situations that put you in, in self-medicated situations that are not healthy. And it's just really learning to pick, pick your happiness and, and pick you over you know, your job. Thank you, Joy. Can you talk about the stress of working in radio, what that's like? Man, you know what's so crazy? This morning I said, I'm not letting you niggas kill me. And, <laughs> the, 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 and the, the reason I said that is because, you know, I, I was watching the passing of John Singleton, you know, God bless the dead, and they said he died of hypertension. And, you know, to me, you know, 51 is young, you know. I, I, I just turned 40, so I'm Very like, damn, I don't so. want to be dead in 11 years. And, you know, hypertension because of, you know, stress and, you know, things that you may be dealing with in your life, dealing with, th dealing with in your business. I think the biggest thing for me, you know, is, is, is the opinions of other people. I think that when you don't have a, a, a proper handle on your mental health, you know, and you're just like winging it, meaning that you're not sitting down talking to a therapist or you're not, you know, talking to counselors or your friends or just expressing yourself the way you want to, man, that social media can be a motherfucker. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, I really feel like we're all just in, you know, we're, we're in verbally abusive relationships with our smartphones. Like, like, right. like, 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 literally, you can open up, you can go on Twitter right now, and it will be somebody there telling you that you ain't shit. So, he, like, you can wake up in the morning and set your intention perfectly, which I do. I wake up, I, I pray, I, I read out my daily affirmation books, I do some meditation, and then I might get on Twitter and tweet out, thank you, God, for blessing me with another day of life, and it will be somebody saying, damn, I wanted you to die. Like, I don't care what y'all say. You can be the, the most I don't give a fuck person in the world. I don't care what people say about me. Eventually, that shit will wear you down. So to me, like, you know, as, as far as for a person that deals with anxiety and, you know, in and out of depression, social media is the worst thing for me. That's what, that's what, that's what causes me daily stress. Because I think we all can, like, we all want the luxury of just being able to create, right? We're artists. You know, you, 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 put, out, you put your work out there and you get feedback. I think we all can deal with constructive criticism, right? We can say somebody, oh, this is good, this is bad. I didn't like this, I didn't like that. I'm fine with that. But then when it's just needless, nonsense criticism, it's just like, yo, man, come on, bro. Especially when it's people literally threatening your life every single day. Like, I can deal with all the jokes. But when you like, man, I want you to die over and over, like, God, damn, like a dude told me he wanted me to die today because he said I was dressed like a, a character out of Grand Theft Auto. Why you want me to die just like I got on a flannel shirt, bro? <laughs> but on a serious note, though, to your point, social media is the worst. Is the worst. Oh, like, yeah. it's, it's a worst. gift and a curse. But it's right, excuse my language, it's fucking people up. Yes. And I'm so glad, honestly, that when I was really in the game doing it, we didn't have it, right? Because I, I see, I even see executives who are caught up, and I'm like, who's the artist? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not, no disrespect, right? Because it's everybody, it's your personal page, you can post what you want to, and if I don't like it, I can keep on moving. I get that. But at the same time, it's like, who are you trying to please? Why are you stunting and fronting for the gram when this shit don't matter, when you hadn't eaten, you hadn't slept, you probably got all this stuff going on, and you fronting like everything is great. Yeah, I would, you know, you know we talk about the youth suicide rate. I think a lot of those kids are killing themselves because of social media. Like, yeah. yo, I'm yeah. so glad yeah, that I definitely. did not grow up in that era. Yo, can you imagine having to go through puberty on social media and everybody seeing all your wild, awkward changes? Like, I used to wear glasses and a fanny pack. 
You know what I mean? Like, I don't, like, like my, my, my daughter, I would not let, my, she's 10, I would not let her get on social media just because the opinions of others should not matter when, they, right. when you're that young. Like, you're growing, you're evolving. Everybody's going to go through their phases where they look weird or they, they okay. look doofy. Like, and you'll end up making a permanent decision based off a temporary situation. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And, and the thing is, it's, the data shows it. I mean, there's, da- there's um, research out there that shows that the social media is killing kids. I mean, the depression rates, anxiety, and suicide rates, and there is a correlation. And I think that's why, to your point about artists, they're real people and they're human beings too. But the trolls on social media, they talk so bad to the artists, even their favorite artists. You got so many people talking nasty. This is a true story. This, I, um, look, I know I'm not on everybody's guest list. I don't get invited to everything anymore. I try to stay in the mix a little bit. I went out to um, LA in February for the Grammys. I didn't go to the Grammys, but I went to some of the parties. So I got lucky and got on the Rock Nation brunch list. I heard if, if, if there's one event you wanna go to, that's the one, right? So I ain't have all the fancy clothes to wear and I was stressing and trying to figure out what I was gonna wear because I knew everybody's gonna be in all their frilly dresses and cute little strappy sandals. <clears throat> True story, I had these pants on. <laughs> And I had a black sweatshirt that had some cute little fur on it. I went to whatever little mall, um, the Grove, trying to find something at Nordstrom's. And, I, and then something came to me, and I'm, I'm not imposing my religious beliefs on anybody, but the Holy Spirit was like, cut it out. You got invited. Why are you going to put yourself in debt? You know you're doing something different. You, you're doing a different type of service to help people. Like, you either going to go and they're going to accept you for Shanti Das, or they're not. And if they don't, fuck them. Word. So I went, and sure enough, everybody had on all the little YSL, whatever, <laughs> Gucci this, before Gucci was being boycotted. You know, all of that. And I went in there, and I got a chance to see a lot of my peers, and they, and they were very kind to me. And when I was leaving, I was already outside, and Beyonce, you know, she, I think she comes usually at the end of the brunch, and she showed up. And I hadn't seen her in years, and I got a chance to embrace and tell her what I had gone through. And that was tough for me, you know. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm, I knew her when she was in the Dolls, before Destiny's Child. But it's still, you know, I, I look up to her and I respect her. And someone, this is a true story, I had gotten in the car after I hugged her, not five minutes after we going down the road, because it was at this big mansion, my um, little play niece in Atlanta texted me, and she said, Auntie, is this you hugging Beyonce? I was like, what the fuck? I just left. Like, <laughs> who is putting this on social media already? And then people were like, who is that lady with the blonde hair? Why is she hugging Beyonce? And I had people like cursing me out just because I gave Beyonce a hug. And I was like, I don't miss this shit. Like, it's ridiculous. They don't even know me and they're treating me like that. So what do you think these artists are going through when people are being so evil to them? I think that's why you see so many artists self-medicating nowadays. And I just want to commend you for getting in the Rock Nation brunch, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that in itself, that in itself is an accomplishment. Because not getting in the Rock Nation yeah. brunch is one of the leading causes of depression in the industry today. Okay? <laughs> I'm grateful to my homeboy. He knows who he is. Yeah, I, um, Sean, I was going to say, like, as a manager, what I'm finding that's so different from we used to deal with is when artists... I, I, I've had artists have amazing shows... 25, 30,000 people cheering for them. Everything's great. And can be in the car with them heading back to the hotel. And they start going through those comments. And I don't care how confident they were 30 minutes ago. The negative one, like, it's like it's in neon. And it's blasting out at them. 
and you see the whole mood change. Now I got to beg them to go to the after party. Now it's like they don't want to talk to nobody. I'm like, yo, the crowd just loved you. But it's those 10 comments. And that, that's the problem because they're already in, a lot of them are already insecure. And that's why they gravitate towards it because it feeds the insecurity, which is I want to be liked. Yo, I started to I started to cut my therapist off one day, right? Because I was I was in there and I was just venting about social media and you know the the the, the tox, toxicness of it. And she just looks at me and she goes, "Well, why don't you just put your phone down?" Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, "She's right. Why don't I just put my phone down?" You know, and it's it's really just that simple. It's a book, you know, called Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport. I think everybody should read that book because it shows you how you should use social media as a tool and not as an organ the way we treat it. Like we really treat it like it's another heart or a lung or our phone is like an extension of our bodies that we just cannot be without. It's a tool. Like you wouldn't walk around with a hammer or a screwdriver in your hand all day. So why do you do that with the phone? But you know what, too, I think as black people, we need to take vacations. Word. You know how many people let their vacations roll over? Facts. (laughs) Me? I used to do that. (laughs) But yeah, we have to take vacations. It is nothing wrong. You will not lose your job. And if you did, then God didn't mean it for you. But we've got to take vacations. Like, I, I plan twice a year to go away and I shut it down. I don't talk to nobody, I'm not on social media, I'm spending time, I'm meditating, you know, setting my intentions. And that's so important just to just get away. And I tell people, like, you know, people, oh, I can't afford to go to these fancy places. Sometimes it's not about that. I remember when my kids, I have twin girls, when they were five, all I wanted was some alone time. At that time, I went and checked in a local hotel because I didn't want to have to cook or clean anything. Yeah. You know what I mean? Now, I, 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 I agree night. with you 100%. That's important. Yeah. Just and, little things. And in addition to that, though, like, and, and this is for everybody that's in here in the industry and everything, and yeah, we go through hell dealing with artists, our bosses, all that. Make sure your home base is good. Yeah. You got to have a good home base because if you don't got no support at home, then what the fuck are you doing this for? Yeah. What is you doing this for? If you got to go home and, go, and, and, and get badgered and beat up and all of that, leave that shit the fuck alone. Walk away because you can't, get, can't, can't have it there and have it there because then there's no in-between. And, and unfortunately, things happen where you, you put yourself up against the wall and, mm-hmm. you know, shit. You need balance. You can't, yeah. you can't fight in the streets. Or in the, in, the, in the entertainment industry all day long, and then go home and fight. Yeah. Your brain's never getting a break, and yeah. you just now you're walking around tense all the time. That's the biggest reason I started going to therapy because I felt like I was putting putting too much of a load on my wife. You know what I'm mm. saying? Me and my wife been together since high school. We've been together for 21 years. You know, and we got three daughters now. So it's like for me. I started going to therapy because I wanted to lighten my load. Because if I don't lighten my load, then I'll be putting everything on her. And I mean, I always say I know I know black women are strong, but goddamn, they need a break too. Like you know what I'm saying? So 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 for me, it was just about going to therapy to lighten my load, so I can help us carry this whole load of a family together. Because I mean, that's that's your best friend for 21 years, so you're dumping everything on her all the time. And I I, th- I think that can drive you crazy. That's just like y'all working with artists. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I think sometimes 
we don't take that into consideration. Now I'm like, yo, let's go to, I'm going to therapy, you go to therapy, let's go to counseling together yep. as a couple, like, just because that. we've been together 21 years, like, that's a lot, like, you know, it's, it's a lot of baggage that she got, a lot of baggage that I got, and I mean, we just got to help each other lighten our loads. Can I just add real yep. quick? Mm -hmm. And that's all about self-care, right? Self-care is a great buzzword, we hear it all the time, but I did my whole research, my dissertation on self-care to mitigate burnout. So self-care has been proven, is a proven fact that it can mitigate and stop burnout. And that's what artists and managers, I'm sure, and just people in general are experiencing. We are living in a time of very unhappy people. And I think it's because of all the stress. I think social media adds to that competition. We are trying to get to a place. And because of that, we neglect ourselves. And if we don't put ourselves first, how can we truly help and support and take care of others? We will literally burn ourselves out. So vacations, little things could be considered self-care. It doesn't have to be something major. Even the little things, time alone, saying no is extremely important. Get good at saying no. Get my, my, my talk to my students in my adjunct profession is be confident in your no. So that way when you say it, you know it and you feel good about it and you don't have no regrets about it. You're making yourself the priority. Right. Yeah, no doubt. I, I love that word. That's like my best friend nowadays. Because yeah, right. you can't be everything to everybody. But when you're working in the music industry, you try you to be. be. And you got to be. Yeah, you got to be. You can't and tell And it's just the Sylvia pressure no. that they put on you. Yeah, but I'm saying you can't tell Sylvia no. You can't tell your client no. Mm. And you get into a cycle where you're killing yourself to please everyone else. And then you're just exhausted. I would have times where I would just shut down for two or three days because I was just burnt out. And I needed to recuperate to get back out there, but. The worst thing about anxiety though, when you say no, like you beat yourself up over that no. Like, did you make the right decision? You know, is that, is that something that's gonna cost me later? Should I have been there? Is this you know, the no that gets I me fired? I have done this for that person? Like, you can, you can beat yourself up over that too. So I agree with you when you say be confident and you'll know. When it's a no, put a period at the end and not a comma. Um, I want to take this back to Dr. Lewis, and then we're going to open it up for Q&A. Um, you know, we hear a lot of artists talking about self-medicating in their lyrics. Now, J. Cole actually said meditate instead of medicate, but some people may need medication. Now, can you just share um, about the importance of artists as well as executives or other creatives not using recreational drugs as a coping mechanism and then share some healthy ones or alternative you know, methods to medication. And then we'll talk a little bit more about self-care and then open it up. Sure. Um, you know, I think right now we're in a time where it's really difficult as a clinician when we talk about marijuana. Because when I was a resident, marijuana was illegal. You know, um, I could have a conversation with my patients that, look, it's illegal, it's really messing with your brain chemistry, but now with legalization, um, it's a whole different conversation. And honestly, um, when we talk about medicinal marijuana, that's different than regular marijuana. There's right. different grades of weed it's, it's now, very, people. Very <laughs> Do believe. Very, very different. So um, there is definitely, there's new research out there that's showing that uh, medicinal marijuana, I think there is going to be some um, room for PTSD treatment, anxiety, but weed, regular marijuana, um, there's a lot of self-medicating. And what happens is a lot of people who don't understand what they're going through, like panic attacks um, or depression, people think that, you know, I know I can't sleep, I know that my, I'm going a mile a minute, I know that my mind won't shut down, so people will drink 
They'll drink before bedtime thinking it's helping them to sleep. They'll smoke some weed because, you know, it kind of helps them in the moment. And what I tell people is you can't really think about that intoxicated state. The intoxicated state, you're mellow, you're calm, you might be a little bit more, you know, kind of going with the flow. But we worry about what happens when it wears off. And when it wears off, that brain chemistry, when we look at neurotransmitters, and I'm not going to get too technical, but those neurotransmitters get, you know, jumbled up and they get all over the place and then it leads to um, symptoms of depression, symptoms of, um, you know, psychosis, schizophrenia. I've seen, you know, I work in Baltimore and um, I, we would have little young guys come in there looking like they have schizophrenia. And when we diagnose, we can't diagnose someone if they've been under the influence of alcohol, cocaine. Cocaine looks like depression. Alcohol looks like depression. So the problem is you've got people who don't understand that they have, uh, you know, an illness that needs to be treated, so then they self-medicate with something that then makes it worse. Um, so really, again, education is key. Now, moderation, if you drink, you know, one or two, one drink or so when you don't have a problem, that's okay. But when you're drinking to help symptoms, then the hope would be is that you recognize that this is, you're now making it worse. So for um, me, I can jump in real quick. When I was really depressed and going through everything in 2015, you know, I like my cocktail like everybody else, but like one drink turned into two, two turned into three, three turned into four, but I'm at the crib by myself. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. That I'm utilizing alcohol. It's already a depressant. But I didn't understand what it was doing to me. Yeah. And also, people not understanding, this is why we do a lot of education around co-occurring disorders. Co-occurring disorders, imagine having a substance abuse disorder and a mental health disorder at the same time. Really difficult to treat. Which one do you treat first? It's a lot that it makes it even more complex because one leads to the other and then one leads to the other and then there's this cycle. cycle that continues. I think sativa is the devil. I've had, I've had some of the worst panic attacks of my life on sativa. I've hallucinated on sativa. I've done the Harlem Shake for 30 minutes in my bed to the point where my wife looked at me that. and my wife said, are you about to run around? This? We was in a hotel in LA. We was at the Beverly Hills SLS. My wife was like, you about to run around this hotel naked? I said, let me put my clothes on because I'm not sure. So I, don't, I, can't do the, I can't do the sativa at all. I don't agree with the self-medicating. At, at, I, I personally don't. And then if I try the indigo, the indigo makes me too in my feelings. Like I'm sitting around just super depressed. Like I'm really, you know, thinking about everything. So I may not necessarily have anxiety, but it puts me in a sense of depression. So the sativa gives me high anxiety. The indigo gives me super depression. So me personally, I just rather pray. <laughs> And talk about um, medication and understanding, because a lot of people will, you know, they'll go to the psychiatrist, because, and I don't know how many of you guys know that therapists cannot prescribe medication, only psychiatrists, right? Psychiatrists actually go to med school, like any other doctor, and shout out to Nurse Noel, who's doing a lot, who's a good friend of mine, and I'm just proud of all the work she's doing around physical health, and we're about to start partnering up and doing a lot, because physical and mental go hand in hand. Talk about when you start sometimes taking the medication, because people are already leery about taking medication, right? Like for me, when I started, I like to call them my happy pills, but my antidepressants, at first they made me really nervous. I wasn't about to run around the hotel, but I was really nervous and anxious, and so I had to get my doctor to go back and adjust my dosage. Right, and this brings us back to the ADD talk. And you can't stop taking medication cold turkey. You gotta wean yourself off. So Absolutely, but I think this goes back, you know, the bottom line is, um, you know, when you're concerned that something's going on with you or a loved one, the first thing is going to get 
um, evaluated. And 80% of people usually get treated by their primary care doctor, their pediatrician. They're treating 80% of our depressions and anxiety. And then that extra 20% are usually making it to a psychiatrist. But, uh, and I'm a psychiatrist, so I know how to evaluate people in our, you know, psychologists, social workers, they know how to diagnose and could probably do everything we do, but they just aren't licensed to do that. So um, a good evaluation is going to be able to determine, is this something that can be um, treated with just therapy? Is it something that, you know, um, holistic approaches like meditation, yoga, um, acupuncture, which I totally endorse all of those because they, whenever, you know, the mind is able to be relaxed, you can't be anxious and relaxed at the same time, it's impossible. So anything that allows you to be relaxed is going to help stave off the anxiety. But the problem is when you have um, real illness like clinical depression where there's a life-threatening aspect or bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, oftentimes those do need medications. And a good psychiatrist or a good um, you know, a primary care doctor will be able to do a good diagnosis and, well, if you find the right one, they can evaluate you and then they can talk to you about medications. Um, antidepressants, um, you've probably heard of Prozac. A lot of people call that the happy pill. That was one of the first um, second generation. I was on Zoloft. Zoloft, yeah, Zoloft came out. Zoloft is really good for panic attacks and panic disorder. It was the first FDA-approved medication for that. Um, but back in the day when, you, you know, the movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, I don't even know if this generates some of you all have heard of that, but um, that really gave a bad kind of um, look to, to psychiatry because people think you're on meds, you're drugged, you're looking like a zombie, um, you're just, you know, not really, in, you know, involved in your life. But the newer medicines really, um, they're not really that sedating. People don't have a lot of side effects. They can take them. They um, are safe in overdose. When we talk about bipolar disorder, that's now, again, this, between the poles, we've got to stabilize that mood. So mood stabilizers are prescribed for bipolar disorder. And then antipsychotics. Y'all probably heard of Risperidol, Zyprexa. Those are antipsychotics that are used for schizophrenia. Now, the problem is if you have side effects, that's why you have to be in treatment with your provider. You start a medicine. You start having problems. You go to the doctor and you say, look, I'm not... You know, I'm having tremors, I'm having nausea, what have you, and then it's our job to really kind of get to the, um, the dose that's going to work best. Thank so. you. What do y'all think of CBD? Um, the cannabinoid? Can yeah. I, honestly, um, I'm having a different, different thought. I really think that there's going um, to be room for treatment for PTSD, for, um, for anxiety. When I was a resident, again, we thought that that created anxiety. We do know marijuana, regular marijuana, creates a lot With of... With the THC, right? Yeah, the yeah. THC component. Right. And, but even um, now, there's been a lot more dollars that are being uh, put forward to research. And I think in a, probably about five to ten years, we are probably going to be seeing a lot more treatment for post-traumatic stress, for anxiety, that we weren't doing before. So I think... Um, but again, it's about... You know, a lot of people think they hear marijuana, they don't know that there's different types and that there's different parts that are being uh, researched and, and that will eventually be regulated. Yeah, I do a lot regulated. of CBD. I love it. I do the oils. I do the gummies. Yeah. I do the, uh, the lotions. Like I, I, it, it really helps my anxiety and it helps me get a, a very restful sleep. But I will know? say those gummies, um, I've seen, I've heard uh, 
people can have some bad experiences. So I think it's, you know, you know, the problem is as a psychiatrist, we cannot talk about those because they're not, they're not regulated yet. So we can't even really talk and give really much. And there's um, no research really yeah, yet. Right. So the research is coming and eventually we will be able to have a much better, I think, discussion. But I really do feel like there's a place for them. And I think um, it's going to have a different you know, place in when we can talk about, hmm, this could be something. I, so I, now, I, I'd oh, like to just say on this side, we advocate the gummies and this, this <laughs> side over here. Y'all right. know me. We still got to do the research. All right. So now we're going to go ahead and open up um, the floor for Q&A. I would like for you guys, um, we need this information out. So if you're tweeting or talking about where you're at, please utilize the hashtag Silence to Shame and tag us at Silence to Shame. Um, we'll have one of our team members take this cordless mic. So free if you can come get the mic. And please ask a question and don't give a dissertation. God bless you. But we want to make sure we can get to as many people as we can. Thank you. Hello. Oh, okay. Well, first of all, thank all of you for, you know, starting this conversation, being open and honest about your experience with depression, anxiety, and anything like that. But what would you say to people who are, you know, just graduating college or are in grad school and they don't know how to like say when, like not even like getting too much into my story, but a few weeks ago I felt like I was having a heart attack at work and I went to the doctor and they said it was a panic attack, but yet and still, I still work hard, I still stay late, I still go to grad school, I still deal with family. So what do you say to people who are like getting into the industry or anything that they're doing in general and they don't know when to stop and take a break? I think, again, I think we talked about before, you have to have boundaries. Um, I can't remember who told me. Someone told me um, mid-career, it was like, you know, when you start picking up your phone at 11 o'clock for someone, you gave them permission. So I don't pick up my phone at 11 o'clock anymore. So whatever, if, if you couldn't reach me between 9 and 7 p.m., which is a long time, then 11 o'clock is not, it's not urgent unless and, someone's... And it's not like it could get handled anyway till right, the next morning right. so, anyway. And, and I know that you're just getting started, so you have to find a, a, a comfortable way to assert yourself, to set boundaries, but ev everyone has to set boundaries. When I started off, I, I set boundaries. I knew I wasn't going to any recording studios with men. That was my boundary. So when they said, can you go? No. You know, you have to find what's comfortable for you but it's about setting boundaries and, and how you set the tone for the type of executive or woman you want to be. And I'll just say quickly, it's going back to what we talked about with self-care. Like a lot of times, you know, we got a Google calendar for everything else and we put all our meetings in it and when we got to fly out and when we got to do this. Now I book appointments and meetings with myself. Seriously. So one o'clock conference call, two o'clock meeting, three o'clock Shanti meeting whether I utilize that time for a walk in the park. Like we, Silence to Shame also, we passed out these cards and they're self-care cards. So tips on the back, like go for a walk, Netflix and chill, go to therapy if needed, unfollow negative people on social media, take a nap, create a gratitude list. Like whatever it is that you, what's gonna get you to your happy, you've gotta create those appointments with yourself and build it into your schedule or else you will never ever, ever get to a point where you're feeling fulfilled. And a good friend of mine always says, how can we keep pouring from an empty cup? 
everybody else wants us to do shit for them and their careers and their lives and everybody else. But what do they tell you when you, you know, God forbid something happens on the airplane? You pull down the oxygen mask and you don't put it on everybody else. You put it on yourself first so you can then help everybody else. So you got to make appointments with you and make it a priority, make you a priority in your life. And I was going to say, I think that's why it's important for the executives who are in the room and the people who have the power to determine like what your schedule is going to be or kind of what you're going to have to do. It's so important that people understand that what we're talking about is real and that you're not going to get the best out of your employee if they're falling apart. And um, people really need to understand that people do have to have these breaks. And, you know, it's a shame that people feel like they have to walk away from their career, from something they love, because people don't understand that something's going to have to give. And it's going to be, I think, incumbent upon everyone to really make sure they're taking care of themselves and making sure that they're not creating environments that are putting their employees and, um, you know, their artists in situations that in, you know, end up not working out. I think, I think a lot of us, we can attest to the fact, too, that you know, we used to work for the maniacs. We used to work for the people who needed therapy themselves. We used to, we used, we used to work for a lot of the damaged people. So those people that are calling you after 11 and wanting you to do the craziest things after 11 o'clock, those are the people that they can't sleep at nope. night. Nope. So I think that for me, I always wanted to be the adult that I needed as a child, so that kind of taught me how to deal with the next generation mm-hmm. because the same way I care about my mental health, I care about the mental health of others because I don't want right. to break the people that, that work with me, you know no, what I'm saying, or, or break, I don't want to break the interns, I want right. to build the interns, right. you know what I'm saying, so I think, I think we're the first generation that has the luxury of healing and the first generation that's acknowledging that we do have you know, mental health issues and we, need, we do, do need to deal with our mental health, the generation before us didn't get that luxury, so they took out a lot of the pain that's that they right. were experiencing on us. We don't, we don't have to do that that's to the next point. generation. Next question. Thank you, Charlamagne. That's Hello. a great point. Hello. My name is Kalik. Um, my question I have is, how important would you say it is to see a black therapist, and was it difficult to find a black therapist? I mean, I've, long story short, I've been to counseling since I was a kid, but, you know, when you're 12 years old and you're forced to see a counselor, you don't want to speak to them, especially if they're white and, you know, and, and I'm sorry to white people, but, you know, they can't, they, you, you can't, you exactly, you're like, you're trying to translate the issues, and I realized in college when I had to go to therapy again, and it's like, they can't assume issues, they're a white person. And so when I finally found a black counselor, a black queer counselor, I was like, finally, like, they get it. They get the family issues, the family dynamics. So can you tell me your experience with, um, you know, uh, finding, you know, a black therapist? Is it harder to deal with um, artists with mental issues if they're artists of color? Well, and I'm going to let the clinicians <laughs> answer that. But I just want to say from my own personal perspective, one, um, sometimes it can be a cultural thing. Um, that's yeah. not to say that someone black can't go to an Asian clinician or a white clinician, what have you, but sometimes there are instances where they can relate to what you're going through. You know, I actually went to an older white man, nice guy, and he actually helped me through a rough patch. But as I went on in time, I figured that I needed something more, someone that could relate to me a little bit better from a cultural standpoint. So I don't want to just bash you know, certain cultures and ethnicities around clinicians, because there's some amazing clinicians out there, and this is a diverse audience as well. But from your perspective, there are some key things, being an African-American male and person of color, that our cl- clinicians can speak to. Yeah, I mean, we, we practice, we're supposed to practice from a place of cultural competence. That means that we are supposed to, to be respectful of the cultures and the, the differences that make people unique. 
and for the simple fact that you apologize to the white people, that's a, that's a, qu a clear sign that we often don't understand that we have the right to be able to go to a person of color if we choose to. Because we think that other ethnicities never have to worry about that. So they could just go to a person of, you know, that's the same ethnicity as, as them and they never question it. But we often question it because clearly there's sometimes a shortage, there is a shortage of black male, um, female clinicians out there. So that makes it more challenging. But you have the right when you're scrolling or, or searching to look for somebody that looks like you, looks like you, if that's what you want, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that as well. And, and I was, there are um, research that shows that people who get treatment from people who look like them, outcomes are often better. But the cultural competency is not just for African Americans; it's everyone. It's across the board. Yeah, yeah, because there is a shortage, and we, you know, we have to be able to relate. There's things in Asian culture or that we just don't do, so we have to be aware. But um, it, it's very real, and, and the outcomes do show that people who look like them, actually, outcomes can be better. You know, it's interesting. When I first, uh, when I first was seeking uh, a therapist, I didn't actually want a black person. Like, I wanted somebody that was going to be neutral. I, wanted, I actually wanted an Asian woman, mm. you know? I, I, I did, because I, I didn't want, like, somebody who felt the way I feel on a lot of issues. Because when I'm in therapy, I'm venting about white people. I'm like, man, what the fuck is wrong with them? Not all of them, but the white supremacy. You know what I'm saying? Like, that, that, we, you know what it is when we're watching these videos online of the police officers killing unarmed black and brown people, and you don't hear enough white people speaking up out against that, yep. you know? And I'm like, how can you sit around in this world and claim to be so loving and, you know, be so American and have empathy, but you don't even have empathy for people that, that, that aren't your skin complexion? So these are the things that I vent about. So I didn't want to be in there with another black person, and we're both agreeing. Yep. But, you know, you, I, I, got, I sat down with a white woman, and guess what? She agreed that y'all crazy. <laughs> she agreed that her ancestors wild out, and they need to do better, you know? So that actually did make me feel a little bit better. At least it was like, okay, yeah. there is some people, white people out here, who actually get it. You know, they see what's wrong with the world. So then we, me and my therapist have discussions about, well, how are you using your privilege to combat prejudice, this white woman? You know? Yeah. And that's called transference and transference and countertransference is when your your clinician doesn't check their own stuff and it becomes their therapy session where the client is now the therapist for that therapist. So that doesn't make sense either. She we should have gave me some of my money back for that. Probably so. Her. She owes you a refund. <laughs> but check your stuff. Therapists are, are, are trained or supposed to be trained to be able to check their own biases so they don't experience counter-transference when they're placing their stuff onto the client. Yep. So we got and time for maybe three more questions and then we're gonna have to wrap. And I was gonna tell them there is a Black Psychiatrist Association and um, Black Mental Health, what's that? Okay. okay. Next question, thanks. Greetings, Sam. my name is Jay Blessed. Um, my condolences to you, Shanti, and I Thank hope you. that you're seeing a grief counselor. Um, I just want to proudly say that this year I started taking Prozac and Wellbutrin, and I'm so happy that I did. And if you feel like you need help, please see a therapist. My therapist is a black woman. My psychiatrist is a black woman. I feel most comfortable like that. But it took me a few years to shake my own stigma within the Caribbean community to go take medication. I'm on it. It's it's been tremendous for me. Um, my question to the panel is, what advice do you have for the women in the audience on how to get their men to go see a therapist? We'll just have one person answer uh, well, that because we're running out of time. Yeah, okay. <laughs> do you want to take um, that? Or? 
Um, you know what? It's hard. And I will tell you that um, I commend the men up here. I've seen patients who have been transformed. Men who were awful in their marriages, you know, who were, you know, abusing alcohol, who were abusing their families. And, you know, I can then, you know, maybe that's why I'm so empathic. I've, you know, joy, we went to school together. We're in a, we have a group of friends and people are always calling me um, Team Osama. <laughs> like there's team, you know, shut, shut the fuck up. And there's team Osama. They think I'm always, um, you know, forgiving and, and trying to look at the other side. But because I've seen people be transformed and I've seen people who, people would have written them off that they're just the worst. And, but they could have been depressed. You know, they could have been alcoholics. They could have been suffering from anxiety attacks, but just not themselves. And then they go get in treatment. They, you know, might get on medicine, they might just have therapy, and they become a totally different person. And men, you know, when we look at stigma, when we look at people who are um, staying away from treatment, black men are, you know, number one on that list. But, you know, women, you know, stigma happens to everyone, but being men are the leaders of our households, and given there's a lot of men who are absent, I would just say that um, when men go take care of their mental health and then when they really go get the treatment they need, it can transform their whole family, their communities. And um, I've had plenty of patients who I've seen the difference and who then I hear from their loved ones that they were about to get divorced. You know, they're about to check out of here. You know, their kids you know, we're um, living under that, you know, the roof of the, the trauma of that. And so it's real. And I commend you all. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in therapy because of every black woman in my life, because of my wife, because of my daughters, because of friends like Amanda Seals or Angela Rye, who tell me that men, we're not out here doing the work that we need to do as men to heal. And a lot of us are damaged and not admitting that we're damaged. I'm in therapy because of my mom, because I watched how my father dealt with alcohol. He dealt with drug issues. Just found out over Thanksgiving for the first time from him that, you know, 30 years ago, he tried to kill himself. That, you know, he was going to therapy two and three times a week. That he was on 10 to 12 different medications. So he never, he, he just gets a check every month. So he never really got the help that he needed in that aspect. And I saw the damage that it had on my, my family, you know. So I, I never wanted to put my wife in the position that my father put my put my mother in so i'm i'm in therapy because i want to do better by my sisters and because my sisters encourage me to do better i think i was gonna say that okay just one quick real quick because we literally real quick so the perception is that therapy is going in as a couch you lay on the couch with your feet up and you're going to just be telling your problems and i think we have to help our men understand it's nothing it doesn't have to be like that when you come to my office you see me the way you see me now we don't even talk about your issues the first session. We talk about you. Who are you? What are your interests? What are things that you enjoy doing? That's called engagement. Through the engagement, I always say, tell your husband, tell your men in your life, go one time. Sometimes all it takes is that one time, and that one time, uh, 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 all that weight can be lifted off right. in the first session. And sometimes it's not the, me sometimes it's not the message, it's the messenger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So That's sometimes right. if, you argue, if you're in a relationship with somebody, and y'all are arguing a lot, he's not gonna hear it from you as well. So sometimes you might have to find someone else that he'll hear it better from and he'll be more receptive. Next question and then one last one up here. 
Hi, thank you so much for doing this and um, having us. I literally just got a spot to be able to come to this panel like five hours ago, so I'm very thankful and grateful. Um, my name is Lauren, I'm from New Orleans. Um, I've been up here almost four years now. I am basically a freelancer. Um, Charlemagne, this is for you. Um, so I deal with just like my depression and anxiety comes from just not being where I feel like I should be at the age of 30 um, at this point. You know, just dropping everything in New Orleans and coming up here. Um, you know, this is like a big city for a person from the South. Um, what do you... What, what did you do um, in between the jobs that you got fired from? How did you feel? How did you deal? You know, I just stopped networking at a point in my life up here because I'm like, I'm not getting anywhere. Like, I take this Essence Fest gig, this Afropunk gig, and, and that's it for the year, you know, and little things that I would do. Um, but I'm ready to just, like, take my life back, get back in control of that, and, you know, put myself out there again. So... I guess my question is, like, what did you do in between those times where you were like, I'm with my mama, like, what the hell am I doing right now? You know? Well, I, I definitely didn't stop, you know, but what I do do is I, I assess where God has me at in that moment. You know, uh, a lot of times we, we, we're up here, everybody's up here talking about taking breaks. You know, sometimes God is going to make you take a break. Sometimes God is going to make you sit down and be still and figure out what it is exactly it is that you want to do. So I think that's where you may be at in, in, in your life right now. Like, I think you may just need to look around and assess your situation and see what it is exactly you want to do. Because everybody, all of us have these, oh, we want to be great and we want to be successful. But no, what is it exactly that you want to do? Write it when you, down. When you, when you figure out what it is that you want to do, then, you know, sky's the limit. And you got to be happy with, 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 with whatever, whatever success you're given because I think a lot of times, especially in this fame-driven era, you know, we equate success with some sort of celebrity. Right. But as long as you're happy doing what it is you're doing, to me, that's success. And that's how I feel. Facts. Like, y'all really think I ever thought that I would be the poster child for mental health? And proud of that, coming from a business like the music industry. My best friend Shantae's in the audience. Like, she know how much I love music, but like, I'm proud and I'm happy. I don't wanna be, I could probably call all these record companies and get a job if I wanted. I ain't trying to take nobody's spot, but I'm sure somebody would find a spot for me, but I don't want that no more. Like, I'm so happy in my skin and what I'm doing. I'm gonna take this shit around the world purpose, and try to purpose. heal as many people as I can. Yeah. When Oprah talked about finding your purpose, I didn't know what that meant. And the fact that I just lost my sister 11 days ago and I'm sitting up here not bawling the fuck out of my eyes. I'm here trying to help heal people. I am finally walking in my purpose and I'm okay with that. The money ain't the same, the fame ain't the same. But he's leading my direction. And he gonna open doors that people in this room can't open for me and I'm okay with that. Yo, I've been doing radio 21 years and I feel like I just found my purpose in the last two years. And I do feel like my purpose is, is, is through this work right here, just helping people heal. That's right. Final be gentle question. With yourself. I just want to say to be gentle with yourself. Don't let like the, what you think or the perception of what people are telling you where you should be. 30, there's nothing wrong where you are at 30. It may take you, your journey gets you at 35. Don't give up on your journey because you think based on, oh, like some of my friends are married and they're set up already. You don't know what's going on in their house. You know, people always worry, comparing, 
stay on your journey, be gentle with yourself, give yourself the time, because your process is different from everyone else's. That's right. Final question. Hi, how are you? I love you, Shanti. Hi. I'm Nurse Noel. Um, I'm from the Dr. Oz Show, and I just wanted to, I want to thank you for She's this. She's being modest. She's from the Dr. Oz Show. Uh, Y'all so, give yes. it up. She's a TV star. So I just... <laughs> I just wanted to thank you guys. This is very important and this is very necessary. I am of West Indian descent. My, my parents are from Trinidad. I'm a nurse, 23 years, and my mother's also a nurse. So thank God she understood that she needed medication. So, um, she's on Zoloft. She also has seasonal affective disorder, which is also known as the winter blues. Um, I wrote an article about that. But um, how important is genetics? nurture over nature because a lot we didn't great touch on question that. and that's what I wanted to talk about because a lot of people are not understanding question. that because I'm a gen x my mom is 74 years old she doesn't like our you know parent our parents who are like in their 70s 80s were not diagnosed so how is important is for us not to diagnose but to assess great question to end on great question Dr. Lewis so um, genetics, when we look at the risk factors for mental illness, there are several things, genetics being one, environment can be a part, um, biochemical, but genetics, there's been studies where identical twins who've been raised in separate environments, um, when you look at like alcoholism, when you look at schizophrenia, you know, the goal was to see, you know, was it something in the environment that was contributing or not? So you've got, they did studies where there were identical twins and then fraternal twins. Identical twins have the same DNA, you know, makeup. So what happened was you'd have these um, identical twins in different environments and the concord, we call it the con concordance rate, like for schizophrenia, is like 50%. You know, we know that with alcoholism, there's a high concordance rate if you have a parent with alcoholism, that child, regardless of them not seeing someone abusing alcohol, um, not being anywhere around it, they're gonna have a higher risk for developing alcoholism because of the genetics. There's a lot of studies out there that really look at um, what the linkages are. Um, there's a lot of genes that get pulled together. Um, but for um, you know, most mental illness, there is a, a genetic linkage, but just like breast cancer, there's you know, people who have mothers with breast cancer, they're more at risk, but people can get breast cancer and then there's no one in their family. So it's the same, schizophrenia, 50%. Concordance rate. And when you look at
who then marries another parent, that rate goes up. But, you know, I have patients all the time who are like, you know what, I have bipolar disorder, I don't want to have children because, and I tell them, no, bipolar disorder is treatable. You know, it's treatable. You're, you'll probably have a child who, if they have bipolar disorder, then we're going to educate them that it's an illness just like everything else and it needs to be treated. And you should not miss out on being a mother, you know, or, you know, a parent for that. So, um, again, there, there's definitely a genetic um, link, but just like breast cancer and everything else, doesn't mean they're definitely going to get it, but you need to be aware that there is a little bit, there is more of a risk. And also, real quick, just to add, a lot of complex trauma. Trauma is another thing as well that can begin when the person, the mom, is carrying the baby. Trauma is, I think of all these kids growing up in areas of chronic community violence. The amount of trauma that just becomes normalized to them is passed along from generation to generation. So we are seeing that trauma changes the brain. It actually changes the brain the way it functions. So again, that's another reason why we need to get um, in treatment as soon as possible so we can start to resolve some of those issues. Quick parting words, how people can follow you, anything you just want to share real quick as we close. Everything's day Everything's day and you know, if you're feeling bugged out and a little messy, man, go talk to somebody. It's all right. There's nothing wrong with that. We're only human. Nobody's perfect. Um, I think if you, communication is the key. I think you have to know from your family as well. I, I come from a family of addicts, so I had to know as I got older that I have an addictive personality. So I think that you have to, sometimes you have to have those uncomfortable conversations with your parents or your grandparents and just sort of get some of the history because we sweep so much under the rug. So many of us sweep, you know, sexual abuse in our family under the rug. And so you have so many people walk around here that were sexually abused that they can't talk to their family about. They don't want to admit it. And so it's communication, getting to a point where you're comfortable enough to talk to family members about stuff, start to live in your truth, I think is the first step to healing. And, and it will be the first step to healing our, our community. I guess I would, I would be, I'm a huge advocate for self-care. Um, one of the biggest lessons I've learned over the last two years is to verbally say out loud to myself, I love you. I don't think that we go through this world and we say I love you to so many people, but how many of us can raise their hand and actually look in the mirror every day and say, hey, I love you. And I think if you start there and you start uh, really working on yourself and whether it's to journal your thoughts out, because sometimes like I, 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 I'm a creative person, so I, my mind goes a mile a minute. And the only way that I can calm down is I got a journal. I have to get the thoughts out of my head so I can rest. So I think you have to just find what works for you, but also love on yourselves. When he said be gentle with yourselves, that's something that I had to learn. I think we, 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 we uh, stress ourselves out over things that really, at the end of the day, don't matter. And so when you figure out how much you love yourself, you figure out what really matters. And then that's how you tap into your joy. Um, self-awareness, you know, be very self-aware, uh, be aware of all your feelings, you know, um, we all deal with a lot of trauma, we all deal with a lot of pain, we all deal with a lot of hurt, and I think that when you become self-aware, you realize that hurt people do hurt people, and when you, when you realize that, you'll go out there and you'll get the proper healing because you won't want to redistribute that pain to, you know, just, just others for no reason, so I just think that self-awareness is very, very, very important, and just you know, being in tune with your feelings. I think they teach us, you know, from, from day one to just always remain positive and, you know, you know, hakuna matata, but no, you're gonna have worries and you're not always gonna be happy. And sometimes you're gonna be sad, sometimes you're gonna be angry. And I think that you just gotta be aware of all of those feelings and that's how you get to the root of why you feel that way and you can properly deal with it. So 
I would just tell people out there, heal. That's the that's the word of the of, of the light of life. Hashtag heal. Thank you. Yeah. And then to add to that, you deserve to heal. The healing is for you. You deserve it. And what I would say is that just practice expressing your feelings. Get your emotional vocabulary up. There's so much stuff online where you can just print out so many emotional vocabulary words and just start talking and sharing how you feel and being open about it and um, loving and taking care of yourself but acknowledging that you deserve the healing and it's available for you. And then I would say that um, if you're you know, listening to us up here or listening to other people in the room and you know that this is hitting home and you know that you're experiencing poor sleep, poor appetite, poor energy, questioning your self-worth, self-medicating. You know, to really be honest with yourself and really talk to someone, talk to a professional, go get help, you know, remind yourself that the brain is an organ like everything else. You know, this is treatable. We, we lose too many people to suicide, and, and not even suicide. I mean, depression kills by people just not taking care of themselves. People with these, what we call passive death wishes, where they don't do anything active, but they'll do things so that they're not actively doing it. They won't take their insulin. You know, they won't um, go see the doctor because you know what? If I die and never wake, you know, go to sleep and never wake up, that's okay. It wouldn't be me doing it. So, you know, my parting words are just educate yourself, take care of yourself, because when you're taken care of, then all your loved ones in our community and this world, quite frankly, you know, would be a better would be better off. And I'd just like to add, you know, we we'd be remiss if we didn't tell you how you can get help. Right, if you need help. These postcards that we made up for you guys, please take them with you. On the back, there's some resources. Um, of course, we mentioned Grammy.com slash MusicCares slash Get Help. MusicCares, they have resources around addiction and mental health. And I'll be the first person to say that when I was an executive, I didn't even know that. And if y'all really want me to be honest, I, just know that I thought it was just for white people. And I know that's ignorant, but at least I'm being honest. It's for everybody. No matter what race, nationality, whether you're an executive versus an artist, they are there to help you. The resources are there. Also, NAMI.org. NAMI is the probably the largest advocacy organization in the United States. And you can log on to NAMI to find out about illnesses, to find you know therapists in your area. It's a wonderful resource. There's also another organization called the Crisis Text Line Organization. It operates 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And they, if, if you text the word silence, we have our own keyword, you text the word silence to 741-741, you can immediately be connected and text with the counselor for about 15 or 20 minutes and then they will connect you with someone locally. Amazing resource. Also, if you feel like you're in crisis, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 1-800-273-TALK. They helped me, I called them. Also, log on to our website. We just recently revamped our site. We have 23 podcasts up. We're on Google Play, SoundCloud, and iTunes. We have everything from inside college depression to faith and behavioral health. We just dropped one on um, borderline personality disorder, BPD, free division is my co-host who's on my team. Um, we have content on YouTube. This panel tonight, we streamed it on our Facebook page. Tell people about it, share it. We need you guys to leave this room so that we can really help break down these walls in the entertainment industry to continue normalizing the conversation. And last, I'll just say I'm really proud that out of the work that we've done, just in the last really two years off of a shoestring budget, 
You know, we have our own day. May 5th is actually National Silence to Shame Day. Wow. So this weekend, we're kicking off a fundraising campaign so that in a year, hopefully, we can raise a million dollars. You know, I want an office space. I want to hire more people. But I can't do this work on my own. So we're asking you guys, we're going to post. We have celebrities, influencers, everyday people, advocates posting all throughout the weekend and helping us fundraise. You can text the word silence to 707-070 to help our organization. And also, I announced it at my sister's repast. Because there are such, this is such a shortage of people of color as clinicians, we are launching the Promise of Hope Scholarship in my sister's name. So very excited to be able to do that. Shameless plug. I have my own book called Silencing My Shame, and it's available for pre-order. I launched it last year, but didn't really do much with it, so I'm relaunching it, and I'm adding two more chapters about when I went to India in November of last year is the first time I was okay with my father's suicide. I actually met people that knew my family. I went to a woman's house that had a picture of my dad's brother on the wall. My soul finally was at peace for me to even want to learn about the Indian side of my culture because I was so fucking mad at my dad for killing himself and taking his own life. And I finally saw him as a human being and knew that he was sick and that he would never leave me. And now I have this other chapter of trying to find healing. And we didn't even get up to talk about grief, but grief can lead to depression and anxiety. Exactly. I'm grieving, y'all. My sister was everything to me. But I've been journaling on social media so y'all can see what grief is. You know, all the bullshit posts people say, like they post all the time, they don't show you what they're hurting and feeling. And we've got to start being okay with not being okay. The importance is not staying in the valley. There's nothing wrong with showing people when you're in the valley, but you got to also show them how to get out the valley. And that's why I'm trying to use my life and leave my legacy of knowing that I'm trying to help heal. Hashtag heal. So please follow us on Instagram, on social media. You know, take this information out into the community and just take time, save a life, and silence a shame. Let's give it up for the panel. I want to thank you for putting this panel together. And you know, I always say that, you know, we got to always tell each other we love each other, we value each other, and we appreciate each other, especially our brothers and brothers. So can we end on a hug? Can everybody just hug? Can we just end this love? Everybody